There's not a person that I talk to inside that doesn't feel forgotten. Those words from this conversation still haven't left me. Diane Kahn, my guest today, is a teacher who went from an elementary school classroom to teaching men inside San Quentin prison. Along with incarcerated journalists and photographers and editors who are serving time in the California prison or who have recently come home, she's created Humans of San Quentin, a space for those behind bars across the country and the world to tell their stories. What I like about Diane is she's a generous listener, although I threw her in the hot seat answering the questions in this conversation. And she's clearly compelled by human relationships and connection. Before I met her for the first time, I asked one of my friends who was incarcerated in San Quentin if he knew her, and he said he did a little. But what he was certain of, he told me, is that she cares. She's not helicoptering in to tell these stories. This matters to her. And she's on the ground amongst those who are justice impacted, trying to shift the narrative and create a space where those who are often forgotten feel for once heard. Humans of San Quentin is a digital storytelling project based on Humans of New York. They seek to remind us of our shared humanity. They aim to break down the walls and stereotypes of prison life and to humanize the people behind the bars. Together, they believe we can deepen and reframe the collective consciousness to foster empathy. And may this lead into creating the world we truly desire to live in a world of equity and justice. So let me tell you a little bit about Diane. Besides being the executive director of Humans of San Quentin, she's a teacher and social justice advocate. She teaches men inside San Quentin to earn their high school diploma and she co-directs the Academic Peer Education Project for currently incarcerated men to teach and mentor their peers. She's formerly an elementary school teacher, and she currently serves as a Women in Leadership and Philanthropy board member at the University of San Francisco. While Diane offered me her time and wisdom and love during this episode, I'm truly grateful for that. I want to also celebrate everyone who makes Humans of San Quentin possible. So that includes Juan Haynes, Eddie Herrera, Marcus Blevins, Joseph Crowder, and all the interns and volunteers and people inside who are willing to share their stories and who offer us the blessing of listening. Let's dive in. I need to know everything, who and what and where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws, to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you'll be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk. Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asty, and I'm curious, aren't you? I'm Curious Podcast brings the unfamiliar closer. I'm telling stories and sharing conversations with people who remind us that love demands we move toward justice and that we're all connected. This opening music is called Curious George by Nate Rose. All right, let's get to it. I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything. Who and what and where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now, Dan, go hard. All right, let's do this. <laughs> so, Diane, you are a teacher, and though your teaching might look a little different than a conventional classroom teacher, 
were you one of those kids growing up who always knew she wanted to be a teacher? Like, were you giving homework to your dolls or something like that? Um, I wouldn't say so much that I knew kind of in elementary school or even in high school that I wanted to be a teacher, but I did know once I was um, in getting my teaching credential and also getting my undergraduate degree, um, when I knew that I wanted to go into teaching, I started spending time in classrooms. And at the time I was uh, going to school down in San Diego and was volunteering in a classroom and it was a first grade class. And I remember sitting there and, and kind of being a TA or an aide in the first grade classroom, thinking how much every lesson that was presented to the kids by the teacher, I could expound upon and reach a different height or, or a different depth. So that was probably the first time when I, I really knew that teaching was going to be a career for me. Prior to that, I'd always loved kids and loved being with them. Uh, so the two kind of blended really quickly for me there. And I instantly was able to concentrate and really, really, really look at the lessons that she was teaching and um, expound upon them. So I absolutely loved it from, from that day forward. So when you were an undergraduate student and you're falling in love with teaching for the first time, was prison or criminal justice on your radar at all or not something that you thought about? Um, not so much. I did have an experience with a new friend that I'd met in San Francisco. Um, she and her husband and I was newly married in San Francisco and we were um, living in Marin at the time going over the Golden Gate Bridge and we we're going to have a night out with them. And I turned to my new friend and I asked her, I said, so what do you do? And she said that she was getting her, uh, finishing up her degree in psychology to be a doctor. And it was uh, currently working inside San Quentin. Mm. And that's when the light bolt went on in my head. And I really wanted uh, to have that experience. And I knew I really wanted to get into it. So at the time I was probably 26, 27. So it took me until I was 50, 50 years old and to get myself back or get myself in, into San Quentin for the first time. And I feel like when you were 26 years old, not that it was that long ago, but it's still like now prison reform or working in these circles is more in vogue. Like it's something that's more talked about or it's catching on. And I imagine back then when you first heard about it, it wasn't. So, you know, you said from 26 to 50, what sort of led you from being a teacher in a, a regular, a typical classroom to making your way to San Quentin? Well, let me back up for you for one second. I remember, I think it was back in 1990. You probably remember that movie, Silence of the Lambs. I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a movie and uh, Jodie Foster's in it and Anthony Hopkins. And there's this scene where she goes down into what we would probably call the hole now, which is solitary confinement. And she interviews him. And I remember that sparking a fire in me. Wow. And I was newly out of high school and really wanted that experience. So when fast forward to about seven, seven years ago, I'm on, on the board at the University of San Francisco, their education board, and was in a meeting and found out that USF was, has a program inside San Quentin, and it was called the Academic Peer Education Program, where we teach men to get their GED, and it is 
peer driven. So there's uh, men inside that uh, we train to be teachers or they can't have a class differentiation like that. So we call them peer educators. So I knew once I heard that, that definitely I had to get in there. Uh, So I first started out about five or six years ago, going in during the day and teaching curriculum to about five or six men. And then we would bring in about another 10 um, outside teacher, free people, volunteers that come in and we would pair them up with the men inside. And then we would teach uh, the GED two nights a week, um, which we hope to be starting up now that um, Mm. the uh, prison's opening up a a bit more. And what does that classroom look like when you're describing teaching five or six men, like where in the prison, what is the the actual environment around you look like? And I guess a little bit more metaphorically, like what is it like to have schooling inside a prison? Well, fortunately, and uh, San Quentin is really on the forefront of what we call programming. So any groups that come in that are willing to give a service um, to someone currently incarcerated. So they actually have a education group inside and a college group inside. So Mount Tam College provides AA degrees for men inside. So they're already primed a bit for it. Uh, The classroom that we're given is in uh, the old laundry room. And when you walk in, there are four separate rooms and each one, each one is brick with uh, barbed wires across the top. And then the actual ceiling is similar to what you'd see in a uh, warehouse. It's metal with, with big, big tubing across the top. Uh, and then the floors are all concrete. So you can imagine the noise in there alone is uh, very difficult. So what I would meet with the men inside to build curriculum, it would be not a traditional classroom. Obviously it wouldn't feel the same way. There are a few metal cabinets in there that are uh, locked up and, and with chains on them that only an officer can come in should we need any supplies or books out of it. And then there's a few different, maybe three or four tables that we can move into uh, different configurations if we want them. And did you, I'm going backwards a little bit, like the first time you walked into a prison to do this, seems like you were like, I'm ready, I want to do this. Was there fear? Like, did you have preconceived notions of like what this was going to be like? I did, but because of of my prior desire, it was obviously something I really wanted. But yes, when you're standing with people that you know have been convicted of very serious crimes, Yes, I think there's a fear there, but that is what has led me now to Humans of San Quentin because very quickly I was educated by the men and saw the humanity inside them, which then instantly quelched any fears I had whatsoever. And I think instantly what what brought me to that was during these morning meetings and how we started it, and it's just a protocol inside. So anytime you sit down as a volunteer or an outside free person, and you sit down in a group, typically we have a check-in. So it's, it's simply to see how you're doing, not how, you know, what, what we're going to be covering that day or, you know, maybe a, you know, what the meeting's going to be about, but you just sit around and you go around in a circle and you share what it is you're feeling at that moment. And the men would come to the table with whatever's on their mind, um, happiness, trauma, uh, they would cry. So that right away showed you the humanity of the person that you're sitting there with. And then, you know, off that, you could expound into the work that we've done. I also think that 
with the English writing we do, so the students would come to us and do different uh, writing assignments. And within that, they would be sharing whatever they wanted in their life. So a lot of them are first person narratives that we would start with and from their own experiences. And they would be very forthcoming just to be able to learn to write um, what was happening with them. So for me, and I know I'm bouncing ahead for you a little bit here, but for Humans of San Quentin, I felt like it was a crime for me to be there and not be able to share that information with the outside world to just bring awareness, education, compassion. Yeah, I, I think I, you and I were saying how we have some things in common. I feel like that's been my experience too, growing up not knowing someone who had been to prison or not being aware of the anything that happens there that I kept when I see like the humanity, which now I'm like embarrassed that I was surprised by because like there are people, but I was like, oh my God, these are people and more people need to know that there are people inside prisons. Um, but I'm laughing now because it's like so silly, but yeah, that that was such a, a big thing for me too. Um, and we're going to get into like humans of San Quentin in a moment, but I'm, I'm curious, you had also said to me last time that you and I had spoken that the classroom environment has the potential of mixing people together of different races or perhaps different like gang affiliations. Can you talk a little bit more about that or like what the implications of that are? Sure, I'd love to. So what would happen if you choose to go to school inside, you simply sign up for a class as we do out here. In the environment that the men are living in inside, they have to stay within their class. So whites stay together, blacks stay together, Hispanics stay together, trans stay together because you are not safe outside of that. So that is in effect a gang that keeps you safe. So when you walk into a classroom, you don't know who's gonna be there. So the men, I think of it as three different things coming at them when they walk in. So they are feeling rather unsafe. Secondly, they've had some sort of trauma associated with their life or their childhood. And typically from what we found uh, from the men inside that uh, we teach, they have what we call a breaking year. So their schooling will stop it at some point and typically it's around a fourth grade level. So you're walking into a classroom that you've had trauma in, you have trauma in your life, potentially you have some kind of learning disabilities and you're not safe. How, how do you create that safety? Because it feels like what, like you were saying also even with the check-in that they'll share vulnerably, but as you coming in from the outside for the first time, does it take a little time to build that trust? Uh, for sure and probably forever. It's something that's continual. But I think the desire is there. And when you look at a, a prison like San Quentin or those other, other prisons that offer programming at all, the men are so desperate for it mm -hmm. that they will put that aside and come all in. Uh, it's also a gift for them to be around someone who's a free person on the outside. Um, so for that reason, they're also um, on their be best behavior and appreciative. So really want to do their best and they really are there to learn. So they want to put their best foot forward in order to learn. But yeah, it's, it, it, takes, it takes a lot, a long time and a lot of conditioning in order for them uh, to be able to expose themselves in there. But it, it also, you know, happens pretty naturally too, I, I believe. And for someone who might not know, like, you know, you're offering these classes for people in prison. You said some of them could have uh, committed, <laughs> I don't know what word to use on this, but uh, sort of horrific crimes or, or dangerous, done dangerous things in the past. Why do, why do they deserve education? Or why does it matter? How does it change things? Uh, that's a great question. I think when you are an educator, 
or you want to better someone, you don't always hold them to the past. Mm. So you're, you try not to have that narrative on somebody. So when you, when you have a classroom of people, you're not going to discriminate. And I think that's what is a, I think, I'm not sure how to, how to exactly say this, but I believe that all humans, all of us have experiences in the past that we've learned, learned from that one moment in time, we shouldn't be then judged on that for the rest of our life. Mm. Yeah, I, I was, uh, we, were, we both know uh, Anthony Ammons who got his GED while he was incarcerated. And I was just listening back to actually what he had said to me on his episode. And he was talking about the first time, like when he got his GED, it was the first time in his life that he felt like his own self-worth, that he knew what that felt like. And that affected the trajectory of his life. And now that what he did in prison afterwards, and now that he's home affects his community, affects his loved ones. Do you find that, that uh, it shifts not only the, the men themselves that you've worked with, but then beyond that, if they have children or their communities or what they do once they get out? Mm-hmm. For sure, it, the ripple effect is huge. So when I used to teach elementary school, I really felt the impact of what I was teaching on the family. Um, but what was startling to me is when I was in San Quentin and you would see a grown man that there's this one, one man that, um, is our lead teacher inside with the academic peer education program and his street name is Pitt. And he gave me a picture of himself holding his, uh, high school diploma. And for him to tell me that he wanted to get that high school diploma before his grandbabies did Mm. really is, is telling of the huge effect it has on the community. So the ripple effect that it has on so many more people when an adult and someone who's incarcerated that hasn't been educated, say past the fourth grade, can then inspire um, people outside. It's amazing. Yeah, oh, that's powerful. You'd also mentioned these, the men in sequence, you get to be like peer educators or, or tutors for their peers. I don't know if you know the exact answer to this question, but do you know about how much they get paid? Yeah, so we have two clerks that work for us. And oh, so like, I'm, like, is it paid through the prison system or is it? Yeah, that's yeah. okay, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, um, yeah they, um, they encourage um, everyone inside to have a job. Yeah. And the average uh, rate of pay is 24 cents an hour. Yeah. The most I've, I've heard of is 34 cents. Uh, but they are starting a new program, the uh, CDCR here in California. So the California Departments of Corrections and Rehabilitation um, is starting a program uh, similar to what we did, started at the grassroots of the academic peer education program where men can then be peer educators and that they're offering at a dollar an hour. So that's the first time that I've heard um, of that. Which is so sad that it's like, woohoo, like a dollar, you know, I mean, it's, like that's something like, oh, wow, such a big increase. But um, yeah, but the, I just want to leave that there. We don't have to comment on that. I just, <laughs> I just, just for people who they did, if they didn't know, I wanted people to understand the wages. Um, yeah. But okay, let's, let's get into it. Let's get into Humans of San Quentin. And on your organization's website, the homepage says, the unheard voices of humans behind bars. And then there's a quote by Rahim that says, I want people to look at me as, as a human being. I've made mistakes, but I'm not defined by those mistakes. 
So what is Humans of San Quentin and where did this idea come from? Um, Humans of San Quentin, so what we do is interview uh, people behind bars and get a picture of them, which is very difficult for people to have pictures uh, of themselves, whether it be in prison or before, uh, interview them. And then we share that story with a grander audience on our social media sites as well as our website. Um, the impetus started when I was first inside teaching the GED. I was also following Humans of New York, Brandon mm -hmm. Staten on um, Instagram. And being a relational person, I am really enveloped in the, each story that, yeah. that I would read. And then I would go in and spend time with the men. So to me, a light bulb went off that this is easily something that people could, it would be an easy way as you and I were talking about just to simply be educated, but also to give a voice to the men inside. There's not, not a person that I talk to inside that doesn't feel forgotten and lost and a good majority of them don't have family or you know have no one to no one no one to contact out here no phone calls to make no one to write to uh, so for me that didn't feel right that there's people in our community that whether intentionally or unintentionally are being silenced so I went to a um, incarcerated friend of mine at the time James King he's also on our board uh, he works now for the L Baker Center. And when he was inside, I went to my idea, gave, you know, pitched him my idea. And yeah, the first person he thought of was Juan Hines. Mm. So inside San Quentin, we have the San Quentin News, which is um, publication is, is simply driven by and written by men inside. And it is shared with thousands and thousands of people all over the world, as well as um, all the prisons in California. And so the first time that Juan and I sat down and fortunately his, um, the media center was connected to the building or he's in the same laundry room. <laughs> <Little> laundry room. <laughs> um, so I hopped over to see him. And the first time that we sat down, he said that he, he's the senior editor of San Quentin News. And he turns to me, he's like, Diane, I've out of all the interviews I've done, I've always wanted to share the men's story and I didn't know how. So instantly it, it, it fell in for us. Um, but I said to him as we're, we're working through it and, and putting time into it and interviewing men. And I said, you know, I very vulnerably came to him and I said, you know, Juan, I really worry about the victims. Yeah. I never have, have gone into this having the impact of, of hurting someone else or triggering or, or bringing up memories you know I really really worry about that and he's sitting in the media room and there's one wall that they have covered with every single front page so it's a month, monthly publication that comes out and there's over 60 front page newspapers that are um taped onto this wall because they can't have pins so it's taped on it and uh, one is in a chair that's got wheels on it so he's able to spin around and he turns to me and he says, Diane, I've been a journalism inside for a very long time. He says, do not worry. It always works out and it's always good. Mm. So for me, that was impactful. It almost brings me to tears knowing that regardless of what has happened, people do see the humanity in, mm. in others and rejoice that. So yeah, he, he and I have um, now been working together for the last three years. Um, so we went after Juan and I talked, we went to Sam Robinson, who is the public information officer inside um, and to pitch it back by him. And 
Sam instantly fell in love with it and said, uh, let me go to Sacramento, our headquarters, and um, get it approved for you. Just hold tight. Well, month one went by, month two, <laughs> month three, month four, and it's a government uh, government organization. So, you know, we had the patience to go through it. And probably six months into it, I said, Sam, if this is too hard, we've had other groups come to us. There's a couple other inside San Quentin in the media room, like first watch, and they wanted to absorb us or partner with us. I said, we can do it that way. He's like, Diane, no, I want you and Juan to have your own name. Oh. I want you guys to have this. So we held on nine months, nine months later. Oh, we wow. You really yeah. birthed the baby there. Though. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah, I haven't thought about that. You're right. That's a long time. And during that time, Juan and I did start interviewing people and we had interviewed about 20 men and stopped because we were really um, conscientious and didn't want that to get the, their hopes up and then nothing to come of this. So one month before COVID hit, uh, last February, we got approved. Uh, and then instantly, uh, none of us were able to uh, get back into San Quentin. And the men were then put into their cells 23 and a half hours a day. So by correspondence, Juan and I started talking. He also does have access to the payphone, which he would get to sometimes every two or three days, but only for 15 minutes. So we would have quick conversations and we pivoted to writing. So our impetus for Humans to San Quentin was to reach audiences around the world, US and other countries, and then eventually around the world to flash a, flash a light into every cell uh, for those voices to be heard, but also for hopefully come up with a better way to incarcerate and be able to highlight those places that are doing it. Uh, the right way and not to take a big lobbyist movement on it, but simply to bring awareness on it. Mm. So this propelled us into our mission much quickly, much quicker than we had planned. Uh, initially, we had planned on interviewing just inside San Quentin, then traveling to a, a few other a few other prisons um, in California, and then hopefully fly to others. Um, so what what is beautiful now, a um, silver lining inside COVID is that we have pivoted to receiving letters from men inside and to not to elaborate too much, but when we're talking about men only getting paid an average of 25 cents an hour, 24 cents an hour, there's many prisons that we, what we do when we first get submissions from people is we send in our introductory packet, which is a letter introducing ourselves and getting screenshots of our social media and our website and simply to build trust. Mm -hmm. So in order for a man inside, or I shouldn't say man, but anyone inside, and for them in order to share their story, they're not gonna completely do that with a stranger. Right. Um, you know, both Juan and I have time inside and, and many of the people that we first started interviewing were friends of his, um, both of ours. So that was really easy to get those interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, so here we are in a prison where they can't meet us, they can't touch us, they can't see the internet, we, they don't know what we're about. Uh, so we've spent a lot of time sending in as much information as we can. To that end, uh, what we would do is send in self-addressed stamped envelopes and stamps um, and paper. Well, most prisons don't take any of that. I was going to say, yeah, I was like, how are you getting that through? <laughs> yeah, so it then falls upon... Uh, the people inside and not all, not many of them have jobs in many prisons to then uh, be able to afford stamps and paper and a pen to be able to write us that. 
so yeah, it's been, it's been growing, but we have to date, we're creeping up on a year that we went live was last August. So creeping up on that. And we're in about 12 different States. We have a really eager goal this year in 2021 to hear from people in all 50 States. Yeah. Um, not sure we'll be able to get there, but it's a, a goal for us. Well, you're, I, that's amazing. I didn't realize it's only been not even a year yet that you've been really creating this. And part of that was during COVID. So that's quite impressive. I want to actually go back to something that Juan had said to you when you were worried about this at first. And he said, like, only goodness is going to come out of this. Like your intention is there and you sharing these stories. And I think because the humanity of the, the men or whoever, men, women, however you identify inside, doesn't uh, reject the humanity of perhaps a survivor or a victim that those human the humanity can exist side by side have you had anything come out of like have you had a victim ever contact you or have had any feedback where you you've had pushback about like what you're doing uh or have you had just positive reactions um knock on wood we haven't good um I do I do wait for it it's on our mind when we're we're checking in what we're putting out there on our social mm -hmm. media um, we haven't, uh, uh, who knows if it's coming and when that, when that day does, it will definitely take our breath away. But I also hope to see it as a learning moment for mm -hmm. ourselves as to how to do something different or do something better, um, and simply open our eyes to it. You, when you're featuring somebody, you don't always know everything that has gone on with them. So no, we haven't, we haven't had any victims come through. Believe it or not, we haven't had anything negative come through. It has been an overwhelming, huge outpouring of positivity. Mm. The amount of organizations that have reached out to us, individual families, I would probably say twice a week, we get letters in our PO box of men that have written to us and women inside and how we've changed their life. And mm. that they, you know, there's people now that, that care about them and just are so appreciative of the impact that we're having and to be able um, to share their voice and to be able to look at their lives differently or actually have weight on the words that they say. So for me, looking at the people we're representing inside, there's a lot of lessons for us to learn out here. What road did they take for themselves or what road are they not taking for themselves? So from a psychological point of view and a humanity point of view, there's so much for us to learn from people that have spent life behind bars, as you and I know, we, you know, you're not often touched by people that are incarcerated. So yeah, I see it as a, a big gift all the way around. Mm. Yeah. And I know a big part of your mission is the highlighting the shared humanity that we all have. Did you expect when people write to you after they've been featured and saying like, this has changed my life, did you expect that reaction that just the power or the act of being seen would be so transformative? Um, I did a little bit because of the time that I've spent inside and I know how extremely appreciative they are, even to the point where they really elevate you. So as a free person coming in, they're grateful that you've made the time to come. Many of us volunteer. Also, should, should a free person ever go to the administration and complain about something that happened, the men have a worse place to go. So there is solitary confinement that they can go to. So never do they want to jeopardize that. Um, so I, I had that going into it, but no, there, there are letters that um, we'll be sharing online uh, very soon that bring me to tears.
just how much we've made an impact on their life. So completely I'm blown away by, by the vulnerability that they share and how fruitful it is to feel the impact of what we're doing. Mm. I'm sure you could name pretty much all of this, <laughs> the stories of having some sort of impact on you, but is there one that sticks with you that you can't seem to forget of someone who wrote in and shared something? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Yeah, <laughs> how do you choose? <laughs> but I, someone does come to mind, um, Michael, he's inside and he's going to be going to the board either at the end of the year or beginning of next year. And we've offered him a job to become be an editor for us when he comes oh. out. Um, but his story um, was very compelling. And I think what really shaped it for him was the amount of pictures that he had. So I was first um, introduced to him, though he is in San Quentin, I was first introduced to him by his, his niece, Lacey. And she had found us on uh, Instagram. And she had just thanked me, just sent a message and said, thank you so much for doing this. My uncle, Michael's inside San Quentin. And I said, do you think he'd want to be featured? And she says, well, sure, let me ask. Um, so she, we sent in our packet and she talked to him. And so together they had quite a bit of pictures of him. And when I got his packet and, and put them all together, it was a true formation of his life. Mm. From when he was a baby until now, I'm guessing, but I think he's in, either in his late fifties or early sixties. And when he wrote to us, he said, I'd never looked at my life like that before. Mm. So it was a chronological view. And then because of the writing that he had done, it really filled in all the gaps for us. And he, we had him expound on a few different things that he had written us to really form his story. And we had one of our um, editors who's in Paris, Daniel, who took a real liking to it and had a, bit of, a little bit of extra time to help us edit. And together we were able to really lay out his whole life. So when the conversations we've had recently with Michael about him coming to work for us, he said, you know, there's a lot of people that I have in my life and this is going to bring me to tears again. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, you and he was just saying, Quentin know me better than anybody in this world. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's, it's heartbreaking and also Feeling because he feels seen by you all and heartbreaking because it's taken this, you know, for him to feel seen and, and known. Mm -hmm. uh, he and I had our first, our first conversation recently. And at the end of the phone call, he's like, oh my gosh, I want to thank you for taking my phone call today. It was the end of the 15 minutes. They only get 15 minutes on the payphone. And he says, you're the first person that I've talked to outside of my family in 18 years oh my god isn't that wild <sighs> yeah so it's elevating to be able to to share what the humanity is happening inside there with the world so I personally feel like it's a big gift that I've been given to be able to to have the access and the CDCR and especially Sam Robinson our public information officer behind us that are, are really willing to advocate for those people in our community so I feel like it's a big gift to me to be able to 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 share with the world and also you know bring positivity inside now yeah i wanted to ask you about that because when you and i spoke uh, last time together we were talking about the emotional intelligence that you found inside and that for me was something that has surprised me and you were saying that you get to be the person who cries with them and laughs with them 
can you, for people who don't know, can you talk about like the, the wealth of wisdom or emotional intelligence that's in, that's in these prisons? Of course, you know, we can't generalize every single person, but that, that you found that and, and did it surprise you? Yeah. So I was having this conversation just yesterday. So one of our editors or um, the, the team that we've put together are um, previously incarcerated. So uh, one of our editors, Joe Crowder, he's on our website and I had known him inside and interviewed him inside. And then when you, um, if you're released then we asked to do an interview with you outside and we put you on our website in the mm-hmm. beyond the bar section. Uh, and he and I were just talking about the emotional intelligence in there. And he was saying that it's not often that a man in particular has the time or inclination to be able to look inside, to look at your baggage or look at your triggers. Mm -hmm. So by being in a prison cell, you have a lot of time. That said, there's not, not everybody goes there, but they really do have time to saturate it. And at a prison like San Quentin, where they have over 75 programs that come in, should they want to improve themselves? Most likely there is something in there a program that is offered to them where they can break it down. So to that end, they really have thought about where they've come from and where they've tri- what, where their triggers are and what they have to do and say to see that parole board, to be able to get that release date. Mm-hmm. Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah, and I, I think you also had mentioned it a few times like at a place like San Quentin because I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that St. Quentin is relatively rare in the access to programming that they have. And because they're sort of right right in, in the Bay Area, that they have a lot of people who are able to come in and volunteer, which is not true at all prisons across the country. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. exactly, 100%. Even, even the, there's prisons that are connected to big cities, which you would think automatically would, would uh, give access to more people coming in. They don't. So it very much falls on the state and, and how they feel about bringing people in and it is it is a lot right you've got to you know have volunteers we've got to go through a a couple gates and 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 it's difficult you know you've got to be uh, searched and Mm -hmm. um it it takes a long time you've already you know have to be cleared and um what you have to wear you know (laughs) yeah exactly you can only wear certain colors and certain things and only bring certain things in and leave your cell phone in any any kind of electronics behind and really at some extent put it, put, you know, a little bit of your life at risk, or at least have that mental um, ability to kind of let yourself um, be there for the goodness of it. So yeah, the men are very forthcoming and emotional intelligence has probably been one of the, one of the first things I saw when I was telling you about uh, reading the vulnerability of their stories and, mm-hmm. and the interviews that they would share. So yeah, the men are, are, I see a lot of emotional intelligence in there that I don't necessarily see out here, Yeah, <laughs> um, which, which is also, you know, attributed simply to the time that they have and the inclination, um, but also to, you know, want, wanting to, to better themselves as well. Yeah. Even just the art of letter writing, I feel like it's such a rare thing. And so for me, as someone who gets to do that with so many people across the country who are inside, it's just like, such a beautiful gift because how many of like my friends are gonna be like oh yeah let's write letters to each other you know what I mean (laughs) so it it is true and rare not that I I want them to be sitting inside a prison cell to have that time but (laughs) um well and to this will keep now that you've brought up the thank you letters that the men write us um again and again and I can probably think of five off the top of my head of thank you letters when the men wrote to us about how therapeutic it was to write what is going on in their life 
So that right there is a form of rehabilitation. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's healing. Uh, I think for everyone involved. Um, I want to switch gears just slightly because I know you're looking to raise funds for humans of San Quentin. And one of the reasons that you want to do that is you want to be able to hire and pay a living wage to uh, the people who work for you, especially once they get out of prison and, and join your team, because it's, it's hard to get a job in reentry, right? When you come home, it's hard for people who have a record. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, the recidivism rate is what we think of. So our goal is to hire people that are previously incarcerated and our two team members that have come out that are um, employees now, Marcus and Joe. Marcus was released last June, June 11th. So I just mm-hmm. turned a year that he's been out. And then Joe that I was telling you about, um, he was released the December before. Um, so it's been a year and a half. And for them to be able to give back to their community and so many of the people that we talk to they'll be released but most of the time their family's inside mm. they they have family but they're very estranged from them out here um or they don't have any and they have that constant need not to get back inside but that's where their heart is but yet they can't ever go visit and they can't can't see them they can get an occasional phone call so i would say that their desire to share the voices or anybody that's been touched by incarceration really wants to help us share their voices. Uh, For example, Marcus is a good example. So he um, was released last last June and he was in the college program with an editor of ours, Susan, who after he was released came came to us and said, what do you think? Um, I have someone inside that is just released. Marcus is a beautiful writer. How do you feel about bringing him on as an editor? So with our conversations, he's come to work, work with us. So he's been living in transitional housing and was given a donated computer and super quickly picked up all the different platforms that we use um, for editing and all the different apps and, and Google Docs and that type of thing. Um, so in order for them to be given that second chance to be able to be given a job um, that's meaningful would help with, you know, reducing the rate of recidivism. Um, So I think second chances for returning citizens are what it's all about for us. So when we think about raising money, that's what we want our monies to go to. Um, So not only does it help with helping share the voices from inside, bringing education and compassion out here, but also helps with returning citizens who come out with a felon. That's a mm-hmm. felon on the record. There's not many people that will look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, yesterday we had um, a phone call from a guy inside that we had put on the, or the beyond the bar section. So we had interviewed him once he'd been out and his interview was up and he said, you know, I think I'm gonna have to take that down off there. And I said, well, gosh, what are you thinking? You know what happened? He said, I've applied to several jobs and that comes up on the Google search. Mm. So he said, even though it's a beautiful interview and beautiful humanity in it. And he says, you know, I, I can't say for certain that it's keeping me from a job, but I, I need to reel in what my what my publicity is out there in order to potentially have the access to getting more jobs and he hasn't been out for very long so yeah Hmm. 
that's that's hard. And I feel like it's so easy for these people when they come out to fall through the cracks because unless they have, you know, someone like your organization outside or they are lucky and they have family, I mean, you're given like $200, like go, like go on your way. I just, yeah. So I I think it's so important that what you're doing, that you want to uh, create space to hire people who are formerly incarcerated. Um, Because I have a few more questions. Uh, I'm trying to, I have one that's sort of more on a personal note. Um, I guess I'll, before we get to that, so you had also said that you want to expand now into all 50 states, uh, it's sort of a basic question, but how does expanding into women's prisons or into different states across the country, different, uh, systems change, change the way you're shifting the narrative? Like how, like, how does that change things? I think our, uh, the impetus of this is to build connections between people on the outside and people on the inside. And if it's someone in your community then you'll be like, you know, your, your antenna might go up a little more like, oh my gosh, this, this human is not living too far from me. Um, so that's a, a big push for us. Um, but I think when you look at the group that we emulate, Humans of New York, he's been able to go around the world and each person's story is so individual mm. that it doesn't matter where you are. So in order to be able to connect with that story, we're gonna have to go everywhere in order to find them, to be able to wake people up here, hopefully draw people in, Mm -hmm. just to spark their interest in what what we can do for for our criminal justice system. How can we change it fundamentally? Mm -hmm. And I think like what you and I have gone through with meeting people that have been inside, you then are able to take that knowledge and transfer it into changing laws, advocating, yes. <laughs> voting, right? Yes. Yeah, I, th- I, think it's, I think it starts there, at least for me, everyone has their different role in what they do. Like I'm not the person leading the protest movement, but I think sharing stories, this is how we forever <laughs> connected to each other, you know, around the fire, you know, people shared stories. This is how we get a little bit closer. And so your point about, which I hadn't thought about, like if you're sharing a story of someone, who, I'm in New York, so someone who's incarcerated in New York, and I'm like, oh, that's nearby. Uh, it makes me think about it differently. And in order to end the hate and the fear, really, that it's fear driven, I feel like we have to lean in closer. We actually have to get to know our neighbor and see that they're not so different after all that shared humanity. Um, uh, So that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Also, when you think about sharing a story, it takes down the, hopefully, potentially the racial lines. So as if when you're reading a book, you fall into that and you ha- don't have a preconceived idea of what it is. So I think that's, that's also another blessing that we're sharing that this is a person that's very similar to you that may be extremely different in your beliefs. So I think that's very helpful for people to be on a level playing field. Uh, we were all children. We, we, we're all, all living, in the, living on the same planet. So I think that helps. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Actually, talking about the racial lines, and this is really just a question because I'm trying to balance this in my own life, and maybe you can help me out. So one of the things that I sort of struggle with in this work is like, I'm a, you know, white woman from the suburbs who didn't know anyone who'd gone to prison. And now when I do this work, I want to make sure that I'm not speaking for someone or over someone who's proximate or like directly impacted. And yet, and yet I feel like there is a role for someone like me because 
I can speak to someone else like me and help demystify what's happening in prison where they might not listen. And like, do you feel that you balance that line of like, we were talking about like, if you were to put a book out or something through humans of San Quentin, you're like, you don't want your name on it or, um, and yet you have an integral role and you are actually quite proximate. Like you're actually in the prison teaching. So do you struggle with that balance at all? I'm not sure I totally understand what you're asking. <laughs> I'm laughing because yeah. I struggle with the racial lines to what extent? Like, I, I don't want to be, I don't want the feedback to be rightly or wrongly like, oh, you're just some like white woman who doesn't know, like get out of the way, essentially. Like you don't, you don't have a space in here. Like other voices are needed, not yours. Yeah, I do feel it going inside prison. I wish that, for example, inside San Quentin, I, I think we're about 80, 85% black um, and me being white. I do feel it work, can work against me. Um, I feel like if I had, you know, a little browner skin, I may be able to um, have maybe, I shouldn't say more of an impact, but um, I, I don't think, like I told you before, at least, you know, from my small window inside San Quentin, the men don't necessarily hold, you know, use that or, or typically have a preconceived idea because I am coming in with, with, you know, the betterment, um, for them. So not so much, but boy, is it prevalent amongst them? They live, they live with it in order to survive. If you're in sitting, say in the chow hall and you're sitting in the wrong area and you're a different color, Someone could walk behind you and definitely harm you. Your life could be at risk. So they are co continually aware of that just for survival inside. Um, so no, I haven't, I haven't really noticed it so much. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good point because I haven't noticed that at all from the people who are currently or formerly incarcerated who I've gotten to connect with. They never approach me in that way. I guess I'm worried about like, you know, what happens on Twitter, which is silly. I need to like, you know, uh, that sometimes we sort of, get so small and so narrow and like who's talking for whom that I think we sort of lose sight of the intention and the love um, while also needing to center those proximate voices, which is exactly what you're doing. Uh, so I was just curious what your take on it was. Um, the other, I guess, last sort of personal question, if you, you, you can say no, but I'm curious, what are your, like, what does your husband think about this? What do your children think about this? Is this something like you talk about at the dinner table? Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I feel a lot of education happening all the time. Um, my husband's really supportive and um, was a little bit leery, but the second that I came home and started sharing the stories and, you know, bringing the papers home and on the kitchen table and, you know, the kids would be helping me edit, it very quickly became a family affair. And then uh, Sam Robinson was also nice enough to invite um, my husband and uh, his employees to come in and do a tour oh, wow. of San Quentin, um, which was exciting. So for all the people that I work with inside, it was great to be able for uh, them to meet friends and family. Mm -hmm. uh, and this isn't exactly on your question, but uh, we do have interns that work for us. And speaking of tours inside San Quentin, so the high school that my kids are at, um, they have a program where they bring high school students and bring them into the media room inside San Quentin, uh, which was a blessing. So they have a, inside, a newspaper inside the high school of the same people 
the kids that had been inside and they do a tour every year. Unfortunately, they had just done it in February. And then when COVID, COVID started and school was shut down and um, the kids knew that I had uh, started Humans of San Quentin, instantly they wanted to intern. Mm. So we have a big flow of interns that work for us now in high school and in several high schools around the Bay Area um, that simply want to give their time mm. and help. So back to your question with um, the kids. Yes, they hear it all the time. Uh, you've got to be, um, unless you're in a um, designated group that is okayed, um, like the high school, you can't come in until you're 21. So um, my kids are waiting to become of age so they can and just come in and get a tour and see where, see where mom works. But yes, it's been a big, um, you know, prison reform is, it's always been something that we've been an advocate of and, and always educated our kids on, but it's obviously at a level now that, you know, it never could be before, which, which is wonderful. So yeah, I was gonna say what a blessing that they have you as a mom and get to experience this and, and learn and, and connect to people in ways they probably wouldn't have before. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their empathy is, is, is huge. You know? Oh, <laughs> um, I do have a hopefully fun, playful lightning round for you. But before we get to that, is there anything that you want to add that I didn't ask or, or anything else you feel like it's important to talk about with Humans of San Quentin? Uh, we would love to reach more people inside. Like I told you, it's really hard to be able to reach them. Uh, so anybody that you, you touch or that's listening to us today that knows someone inside, we would be happy to be able to send information into them. So yeah, it's, it's hard to build trust. They don't know us, they don't know what we're about. So the people that are listening, if they do, if they can be that advocate for us and there's people that maybe they don't even know but they want us to hear from, uh, we're happy to get their, their name and, and what state they're in. Ideally, we end up with their um, Department of Corrections number, their DOC number, and then we can find out what we can send them inside and obviously not sharing, not for everybody, but everybody in there has friends. So um, yeah, that would be a voice that I would love to get out there to be able to, to hear more, yeah, share. Absolutely. And for someone to contact you, is it best to go to your website or where's the best way to find you? And uh, if you could lift that for us. Whatever is, whatever they like to go okay. to, whether you're a Twitter person or on Twitter or on LinkedIn or on um, Facebook or on Instagram, we have a website. And I'll have links uh, to all of this in the show notes so people can just easily click and go there. Well, perfect. Yeah, our email's there. Reach out. One of us will get back to you as quickly as we can. We do have, um, if you can imagine going back to the days where everything is done by writing. <laughs> so we do, we've gotten maybe two emails from people inside with um, those prisons that have that capability. But we sit on anywhere at least today, anywhere from 75 to 100 different letters that we are actively working on to write back. So our PO box is, um, is a busy place for us. <laughs> but we try to get back as quickly as we can, but when you're you know, handwriting and, and mailing packages and in and out of the post office, it takes us a little bit. Yeah, that, that's definitely a lot to get through. Um, worth it though. Uh, I think uh, the number one person that comes to mind when I think about what um, I would like represented today is uh, Juan. So our Juan Hines, our, our uh, partner inside, the amount of time and energy and dedication that he puts into Humans of San Quentin, 
is startling. Uh, he has a, anybody that, that you talk to that meets him, the amount of energy that that man has and is, is beautiful to see. He works his butt off inside for us and reaching um, people in, in different parts of San Quentin, the different cells that they're in, there's different blocks, they call them in units. Um, so he's uh, continually making his way when he can, mm -hmm. occasionally when they are let out during COVID uh, to make their way. Uh, I also wanna give a um, shout out and let people know that early in the pandemic, Juan got COVID. So mm -hmm. they put him in a, a section of the prison um, that didn't have electricity, that was wow. 100 years old. And he was writing us letters. He wrote us uh, pages of people to contact. He would you know, share their phone number and their first and last name and their email. So for someone who doesn't have access to a computer and only has a few pieces of paper that they let him take into the solitary area while he's recovering and, and was there for a couple months, um, it's really beautiful. And on a side note, Juan's going to be going to the board hopefully in November, which means if all goes well, he'll be out here with us three months later. So the beginning of next year mm -hmm. and a couple organizations that he also holds close to his heart besides Humans of San Quentin, um, he's going to be spending on, time on an organization called Mourning Our Losses and Solitary Watch. So um, anybody that's interested, they can go and look uh, that up. And then Juan's also a prolific journalist. So there's lots of his work that you can find on our site in different places. Um, I also want to share how fortunately we are to have people that have been previously incarcerated uh, work on our team. We um, lean on them quite a bit for what we were talking about earlier, the lingo that we can use and just some of the stories that we receive, can we share them? Are they safe for them inside? We had uh, one man who wrote us and is very su suicidal and thinks about that every day. Um, and we, we put that out there. So we really lean on them in order for them, Marcus and Joe, and then James King, who's on our board, all men that we look up to who mm -hmm. spent time inside. Um, and then I also want a big thank you to you even asking to talk to us, the speaking on behalf of, um, and I keep saying men, um, because we've, you know, we, we started in San Quentin, but now um, the few women that we've heard some from and trans as well, that they would be touched simply that you called mm -hmm. and were interested in humans of San Quentin, regardless how far that goes. So for you to also be um, interested in a podcast and, and to be able to elevate their voices, um, that's not something we can do here. So on behalf of uh, the people behind bars, I can wholeheartedly thank you for, for your time and what you're doing and your own curiosity. So thank you. Oh, and I feel like the blessing is all mine. And I know that you and I are speaking today. And I'm so grateful for you, but I also hold them all sort of with us in spirit because I know they're obviously integral to all of this and it's their story. Um, so the, the love and thanks goes right back. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. Uh, all right. Are you ready for our lightning round? <laughs> I'm ready. Bring it. Um, okay. So my first question, this is completely unrelated to anything we've been talking about, but when you and I spoke the other day to prepare for this, I got to hear your husband's motorcycle in the background. <laughs> and so I'm curious if you could just like take a day trip, just the two of you, like hop on his motorcycle and drive anywhere. Where would you want to go? Gosh, we live in such a great place. Uh -huh. Um, Personally, I love to hike or go to the beach mm. and that, you know, living in the barrier, that's super accessible. 
But I think just uh, being married with kids and a lot of teenagers, anytime we can just simply get alone. Um, one of our favorite places we love to go to uh, near us is by the Golden Gate Bridge, Cavallo Point. Go over there and even uh, grab a blanket and sit and hang out. Uh, but we also have Stinson Beach nearby. Uh, so anywhere, even if we can get out for a couple hours, we'll even go to the farmer's market. Oh, just I love to that. Yeah. <laughs> quick little date on our own. Aw, <laughs> that's adorable. Um, okay, so switching gears, what's something that would surprise most people about you? Hmm, that's a good question, but I have a huge fetish for chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> have you had any chocolate huge... chip cookies yet today? No. Not today, but I'm already thinking about it. <laughs> so I think I've tried, I love to bake and I think I've tried every chocolate chip cookie recipe that comes my way. Um, so that's a big thing that we do probably every other night. It seems like we're, we're making some and at least we, a lot of times we'll freeze the batter and then be able to, and put them in little shapes of um, little round scoops. So they're ready to go whenever. But I think chocolate is just my thing. I don't know if you've been to uh, the Cheesecake Factory. I have, yes. <laughs> they have Linda's fudge cake there that I sometimes dream about. That with some gelato ice cream, and I am just in heaven. <laughs> it's so worthy. Ice cream and chocolate theme. I mean, I unfortunately, I can't get excited with you. I'm probably the only person on the planet who doesn't like chocolate. I know. So when you describe these things, like in my mind, it sounds like delectable and I can sort of get the feel, but I don't know. <laughs> so what is your thing? What's your vice or what's your one thing you go to? Um, I like, I haven't had it in a really long time, but I, I like, I like Cheerios. Like cereal used to be my mm -hmm. thing. Uh, it's, it kind of makes me a little bit sick, which is why I don't have it often, but yeah. cereal peanut butter is good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Well, I'm glad. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so talking about, you were just saying before, like, you know, anytime you and your husband can get away or you have four children. And I know this week as we're recording, you have some rare time to yourself, it's the children, the kids, uh, teenagers out of the house. So is there something like fun you've done this week, whether it's like, have you been like singing while you're cooking because you're alone and you can sing in the kitchen or like taking up a hobby? Like what have you gotten to do just for you? Uh, well, I love to bike, so I've been able to get on my bike every day. Ooh. I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of moms um, or people running households with kids will enjoy this one. I haven't had to do two loads of laundry and two loads of dishes every day. <laughs> so just the, the silence of that. And also, you know, getting on a phone call, having a conversation or um, a FaceTime with people that's longer than 15 minutes is... <laughs> A real, a real blessing, but yes, I get, I like new country music. So I'm mm -hmm. able to uh, blast in the kitchen, a meal that I'm making just for myself, mm -hmm. which is huge. Usually the amount of food that I'm around um, is startling. So it's nice <laughs> to be able to just actually plan what I'm going to make, uh, what I'm going to eat and make it. Oh, I love that. And I'm also lucky that I've gotten to benefit twice now this week from these long conversations with you. So <laughs> that was nice too. Um, okay. So speaking of dinner, so we're going to take your husband and kids out of the equation for a moment. If you can have dinner with anyone, uh, who would your dream dinner guest be? Oh my gosh. There's thousands of people that come to mind. Um, but I'm a huge reader. 
So somebody I've always thought that I would love to sit down with is Gertrude Stein. Oh. And she and Andy Warhol actually um, painted 10 famous Jews back in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and my mother-in-law was living in New York at the time and gobbled up three of them for maybe under, under four or $500 a piece. Wow. So we actually have one of those. My mother-in-law said to me not too, not too long ago, said, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. She's 85. She's like, I'm not going to be here forever. Um, do you want, you know, do you, would you like one of these for your house now? Which one? <laughs> so I went back to her and I said, well, I want all three. <laughs> So we have uh, three original Annie Warhols and one of them is of Gertrude Stein. So I get to see her every day and would love to um, be with her. But um, who else? Like Nelson Mandela, right? I mean, he's great. Uh, Martin Luther King. And then someone more present, Michelle Obama. Would love to. Oh, oh, these are great answers. Oh my gosh. I want to have all, I want to have these dinners with you. <laughs> And even Sigmund Freud. I mean, I love psychology. Yeah. He would be interesting too. You're so. fascinating. Your answers to these are fascinating. Um, they make me want to know more. Oh, so this one is just for fun. Um, what's a phrase or word that you've learned from your students in San Quentin that's sort of like prison slang or shorthand that you wouldn't have otherwise known had you not done this work? So there is so, I would, I would say after my introduction to prison and just being in there, there's so many terms I don't know. It's almost like a different language. Um, but to that end, um, one of my team members, Joe Crowder, um, he and I have been putting a lingo page together, which mm -hmm. will turn up on our website, um, hopefully next month. But they're not, a lot of the words I've learned are heavy. Like they're not necessarily fun. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are fun, some of them I like, but there's one, in particular, it comes to my mind that I just learned this week. Um, I'm not sure I should share it, but it is, it's kind of disturbing. Um, do you want to hear it? Now I kind of have to know. <laughs> so it's what they call bus therapy. And I guess there's three different reasons why you could be put on bus therapy. So one is as an inmate, if you have had kind of a righteous winning lawsuit case against the facility or um, somebody inside. Um, or two, you had some kind of serious aggression, some assault against either a free staff or an officer inside. Um, or the third reason would, if you were able to get someone fired inside, which is really rather unheard of. But what they'll do in that case is they will put you in the hole, which is solitary confinement, and then they will transfer you to another program. And they say that they'll put your belongings on that bus with you, which they don't, they end up getting rid of it somehow. And you just get beat up. I guess you get beat up in the hole. And then they will literally take you up and down the state to different facilities and check you in to other people that may want to abuse you somehow. Mm. Yeah, it's... Um, it's not something that is probably too well known, but I just heard it this week and I guess it is, you know, if you look at both sides, there's reasons for why it happens. Um, so that's probably not the light question you were answering. <laughs> but uh, we also, another one, um, there's a lingo term for someone who snitches inside a prison. 
and it's called Teal. Oh, I didn't so know this. Guards, yeah, not new. Guards will wear brown and inmates wear blue, so you're neither. They call you a Teal. Oh, interesting. It's actually like it's very creative. This, like, like you said, it's almost like a whole other language. Yeah. Yeah, and there's tons of them, um, and I always make the guys use it in a sentence so I can really hear how it. How it <laughs> the teacher and you, I make them use it in a sentence. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, uh, there's another one that Joe was just telling me about. It's called Front Street, and it's when your cell is right near a guard's tower or their office. So there's nothing that you can hide in there. So you can say, you know, someone will try to give you something or something else will have. They'll say, oh, no, I can't. I live on Front Street. Mm. So, and, but there will be a bunch of them coming out on our website if anybody's interested that you really want to dive into it. Uh, Joe has taken the lead on it, put a ton of good stuff in there. So it's fun. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be checking that out once that's up there, like a whole dictionary. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, this is last one. Are there any like words of wisdom or things that a student has said to you that has impacted you and sort of still sticks with you? Um, I think when I think about my interns, which are in high school and, and a few that are now in college, for them, it's overcoming the narrative they have on someone. So they will have a letter written by someone in front of them that they have to then help us draft a letter back. And to be able to, and, and many of them are very forthcoming with their crime. So to be there and to have them open up my eyes and the two of us work together as to what should be said, what are our feelings that are coming around this? What is, what should be said? What's, what's appropriate? What's our feeling? What, what stance do we come from and what do we want to share with them um, is really impactful. I mean, there hasn't been a day in the last almost year that we've been live, but since I've been in San Clinton, where I'm not learning every single day. So it's it's startling the amount of, of, of time and, and energy I'm able to spend on this and learn so much. So it's a big gift to that. So um, I'm thinking of somebody, one of our interns in particular, um, that I won't give her name because she's still 17, but it was really hard for her to write back to someone. Um, and, and she came to me later and she says, that's the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm. So, and, and subsequently for her to now go on and, and help us um, be a, a big advocate. And, and a lot of the words that she uses are, uh, you know, words that we, we then share with a lot of our men inside. So the insight that they share has been educational for me. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think it speaks to the life-changing and world-changing power of connection, which is something that you are facilitating every single day. Um, I'm so grateful for you sharing this space with me and just for being who you are in the world. It's been like my absolute pleasure to get to connect with you and I hope we get to keep connecting. Oh my gosh, you're so sweet. Well, I'm, and all of us the humans in Quentin are just flattered that you reached out and just your, your desire and at the end of the day, the curiosity that you have um, for this line of work. It's not something that always is held in people's hearts. So we send a huge thank you to you. And, and I feel awfully one-sided that we're going to sit here and talk and you ask me all these questions. I'm not 
typically a person that uh, <laughs> wants to share a lot about myself. And when I sit down with somebody, I'm more curious about them. I don't want to <laughs> myself, so. Well, I <laughs> appreciate strange, doing it. Yeah. It feels strange not to sit here and ask a que- and lots of questions about you. So maybe just dawning on me, maybe at some point we flip the we flip your I'm curious and put it onto you and let me come and ask questions all about you so we can have a oh, I love that. About Ashley uh, <laughs> podcast. I, that would be so much fun. That would be a total honor. Um, we will make that happen. All right. Yeah, that would be fun. I mean, if you think about so many people that you've talked to and everything that you've learned and, and just the world of, of podcasting that so many people don't learn about or know about. So yeah, you'd be a, a fun one for us to be able to hear about you. I love it. I need to know everything. Who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in talk up their body. Another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes. Stay in your lane, I to stay on the go. I can to play with the pros and act like a rookie, so they overlook me. Then I double up again, none of their nose, none of them cold. They just got lucky but never adapted, so I'm to the one if it's coming to blows. My enemies cutting it close. I let them think that they got me, but what do you know? I had them beat before we ever spoke. I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything, who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything.